presently run Revelator. Can you give us a 30 second before we deep dive into your background, what in the world Revelator is? Sounds good. Um, yes. Yeah, so um, I started the company uh, close to about a decade ago, um, coming from running a record label and understanding the shift and the digital transformation of the music business from a B2B perspective, from a labels perspective. And, you know, back then, you know, 10 years ago, we didn't have hardly any, you know, software or tools for running a label, managing digital IP, managing reporting and royalty obligations to rights holders. So I built the platform initially to help my business transform into a digital business and soon realized that there was everybody's pain point and problem around, you know, data and royalties and payments and analytics and understanding more transparency around, you know, streaming data, those kind of things. So Revelator became a B2B platform that serves, you know, uh, distributors, record labels, publishers, artist management companies who serve artists, who serve rights owners. And over so the last- So you probably, you know, if you're an artist listening to this, you probably want to nudge your, your small label to say, are you using Revelator? But that's, I want to get to the 10 years, but I'm going to drag you backwards in time. Because again, you're a fabulous ethnomusicology person from UCLA, but you were born in France, right? How did yeah. you, when you were a kid person, were you a musician? Were you a, um, a, a, a entrepreneur who was selling lemonade to your friends? What was no. that person who was made, you were not, a, a, so what were you doing when you were in high school? What was kind of the heartbeat of this that got started? Even uh, before high school, right? I grew up uh, playing drums at the age of nine, listening to a lot of you know music from around the world. You know, my parents are from Tunisia. I was born in France, and we grew up in in Los Angeles. So, listening to you know Brazilian music or reggae or you know uh, Arabic music or you know soul was you know what we would normally listen to at home. It wasn't very you know top forty radio. It was you know. Um, Brazilian bossa nova and things like that. So growing up, I was exposed to a lot of music from around the world. So I think culturally, you know, I was already, um, you know, very much interested in discovering music from around the world, not just in my, in my country, right? And that gave me already a, a perspective on, on life, a perspective on culture, a perspective on music, because I, I was seeking, you know, interesting rhythms from you know, African music and Cuban music and Latin music. And I just loved, you know, flamenco music. I, I love culture and I love music. Ethnomusicology is exactly that. It's the anthropology of music through culture in a way. So um, were, your, growing up, were your parents musicians? Because I must admit, um, my family, I we had, you know, over the air radio and um, a few albums and definitely wouldn't have to had this exposure as a young person. Were your parents highly musical? And not highly musical, but they love music, you know, um, and even listening to Bob Marley when you're nine years old, that's a really great exposure, you know? Um, but I think once I moved to LA with my parents and initially we came for a summer vacation and my, you know, my mom just did not want to go back to Paris after going to Yosemite and, you know, seeing Los Angeles in, this is in the late seventies. So not a lot of traffic, you know, a lot of great space. Um, and it was a fantastic life to live, you know, the sunshine state in many ways, uh, compared to LA, you know, Paris where, 
you know, it's cold and it's gray and it's, you know, not a great place to grow up in some ways as a young person. The, the opportunity, you know, I saw, you know, I started playing keyboards and synthesizers. I was into electronic music. You know, this is the early 80s. So I was very much interested in, in the clash of culture and technology. Um, and when I turned 18, I kind of stopped being in bands and playing. And I just didn't know that I wanted to be a, a recording or performing artist. That was not my calling. But I knew that I, I loved music and I loved, you know, culture and I had to figure out the path forward. So, you know, I lived in Ohio for a while and I came across an album by Ali Jihad Rasi, who was a professor at the UCLA's ethnomusicology program. And I said to myself, this is what I want to do. I, I want to listen to Oud. I want to listen to Arabic music. I want to play the Santor and learn about Iranian, you know, Persian classical music and things like that. So I applied, I got in, and that was the beginning of my you know, education in ethnomusicology. But it was so academic, and I was, you know, there was a disconnect for me between the world of academia and what was actually going on in world music in the 80s. So I wanted to be up doing applied ethnomusicology. So I started DJing, and I started bringing, you know, African music and Arabic music and dance music and French hip-hop in the late 80s, you know, to clubs in LA. And I became a DJ. And from there, I became a radio host on KCRW. And, you know, I loved the the whole 90s. You know, there was a lot of great music coming from, from around the world, from the UK, from Germany, from Austria. So I was really good at uh, spotting talent and, and developing, you know, an ear for music and saying, oh, th these two tracks go really well together. Let me put it on my show and, you know, and I started discovering artists and um, broadcasting and promoting them. And that kind of became the incubation of my record label in a way, because a lot of this music just did not have distribution in the early 90s. So I would, you know, call the artist and license the rights to use the music. And I learned about the music industry that way, because out of my passion for putting music together in compilations, today we call them playlists, but back then we called them compilations of records, right? And we would put them, put different songs on a CD and that became a compilation. So but you that's didn't how have I got a, into the music a, industry. But you didn't have a business background. So was this kind of a trial and error learning how to manage a label or did you find people that were then some of that wisdom for you? It was purely my passion to understand that I want to promote this music. So I need, you know, I had to learn how to license music and license the rights to music and do contracts. And, you know, back in 1993, I had purchased a, you know, a Mac computer with a stereo digital sound card. And I taught myself, you know, digital audio editing and mastering, and I was making records. So back in 1993, after I released my first record, I had a chance meeting with a guy named Chris Blackwell, who's the founder of Island Records, producer of Bob Marley and many, many others for over 60 years. And he came to my studio in Westwood um, and he saw that I was a math scientist. I had a record, you know, I had basically a record <laughs> company in my living room. You know, th there was a computer in the middle of the living room and records on the floor all around me. And that was my passion. That was what I did, you know, just to uh, make records. So he said, you know, let's sign you as a label. You can probably make records a lot cheaper than I can. 
you know, a U2 record costs a lot more money than what you can do in your living room. And that was kind of the beginning of digital music in a way. So before that, were you making a full living doing this or was this part of a portfolio of things that put food on the table? So, you know, after, you know, university, I would DJ and I was earning $60 a night DJing for a whole night, right? By the end of my career DJing, which was around 2000, I could make $5,000 a night. So that was a big difference in a decade. But when you start, you don't really think about the money. You're not doing it for the money. But you could, you know, DJ three, four nights a week and make, you know, $1,000 a month doing that. So by itself, there was not enough. But that plus the record label, you know, was enough to live on. And, you know, when you're in your early 20s, you don't have a lot of needs in the same way um, as you do when you get older. So um, it was a great time in my life. I really enjoyed traveling, going record shopping. You know, if you remember Rhino Records and Aaron's Records, you know, sometimes you would go and find, you know, the one vinyl that was available in Los Angeles, you know, and I was one of the few DJs that had that record and I would play that on my radio show and at clubs. And, you know, there was a special um, relationship to music as culture, especially in physical format like vinyl. And, you know, I, I miss that a lot today in digital music. So I was going to say, those of you who are listening to this on YouTube are going to see your face light up. But those who are listening for the audio only, you're missing Bruno's face totally light up when he's talking about this time period. You have this joy on your face talking about this. Um, so, so then you went and were part of someone else's label, but with your own sub-label brand continuing, correct? So Island Records was our distributor but it was our, you know, our label distributed by Island Records and then Universal purchased Polygram, you know, and then I continued my work with Chris Blackwell directly through his new label called Palm Pictures. And then, you know, started becoming an independent label in the you know early 2000s. Um, and I've been independent ever since. I don't release as much music today um, or as I did um, last decade, but I think ultimately my interest started shifting to figuring out how to use technology to streamline the complexities of running a record label. And the challenge I saw, you know, in 2003, I already had a deal with Apple. So I was already, you know, selling on iTunes and dealing with digital, learning about the complexities and challenges of digital around metadata and reporting and, you know, data processing really. And, the challenge I started seeing in the in the market was when Spotify came out in 20, 2007, 2008. And until then, downloads were a great business. And, you know, we were able to you know, have eight people in the company. So when you're running a small label with eight people, it's, you know, uh, it's pretty meaningful. You know, you're able to release music, promote music, market music. And, you know, there was a, a good business. We were doing a lot of sync licensing you know, on film and television and advertising. And we had kind of found a market for this lifestyle niche, you know, boutique label. But when I saw the the rise of streaming, I said to myself, oh, we're going to be in trouble. It's going to cannibalize downloads and the unit economics on streaming are just not the same. That's a polite way to put it. I'm trying not to, to use bad words. <laughs> well, for, for, for those of you who this may not be your jam, 
um, the 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 revenue per unit was low, and the detail and hassle per unit didn't necessarily change, right? So that you were having data coming in for penny fractions that you used to be dealing with much larger units and having lower volume, but still data per item. So that kind of adds to the complexity of the thing. Yeah, you go from, you know, getting 70 cents per download or $7 per download to getting 0.0035 cents per stream. And your file now has, you know, a million lines in a CSV. Uh, We'll swing back in the conversation, but um, let me, let me sort of take you a slightly different direction. You also, before you go too deep into the current great work you're doing, you also became more of a lifestyle curator too, right? So whether that was working with Cirque du Soleil or working sure. with a hotel chain, you were taking an avenue of bringing music to place. How did that, sure. how did that, I shouldn't say it's a left turn because it, it, to me it aligns wonderfully with your label, but how did you get into the place-based music? And then why are you not still in place-based music? When I was running their label, you know, in the in, let's say it's 2004, I mean, even before, right? In the mid-90s, I started, uh, you know, creating compilation records. And those records were a lot of great world music. And Chris Blackwell had a chain of hotels across Miami, Bahamas, and Jamaica called Island Outpost. And he asked me, hey, can you create, you know, the soundtrack of the hotel experience? Uh, with your records. So I would start traveling to, you know, these locations and start to learn about the vibe and what the feel of those places are, and then kind of put together soundtracks and, and playlists and collections of music that would really capture the space. Um, And that was an amazing time in my life because I got to travel a lot and really try to create this sonic architecture to the brand and really understand what does you know, GoldenEye in Jamaica sound like? What does, you know, um, Eleuthera in, in the Bahamas, you know, there's a place called Pink Sand, you know, which is a beautiful uh, beach and property. It's like, what does that sound like? Because they're different. You know, every property has its own vibe. You know, I was collecting a lot of music. I was, you know, curating a lot of music for these properties and making records as part of that and selling records you know, in the mini bars, right? This is going 20, 20, 30 years back. Um, and that's how, you know, people discovered music and listened to music during their holiday. And that became the sound soundtrack to their vacation. So I really loved connecting uh, this lifestyle experience around music and helping people explore and discover new music um, through that, you know, through that distribution, which is more lifestyle distribution. When it got to LA, you know, places like Oliver Peoples, which is a great, you know, um, eyewear company. They were the first ones to start selling our records in their shops. You know, um, this is going back to 1995. And then, you know, we started doing compilation records for American Rag on, on um, La Brea and, uh, and doing records for yoga studios and things like that. So we were always looking for new ways to distribute music and share music that would just never, you know, make it on on commercial radio. And I think lifestyle distribution was really interesting. And I think for a lot of people, I wanted to make sure that you talked about that, because a lot of people don't realize that entire space occurs. 
and I keep running into people who currently do this, but I'm always fabulously baffled that this is a, an area of expertise, but it, it's a unique branded element that is the sonic architecture of a place, which I do find a really interesting business model that is much more lucrative at times than some of these other things that we're currently dealing with. So, but let me sort of bring you back to both what you're doing now, but maybe how in the world, so you traveled a lot and then you've decided to move your family to Israel. And so you now are running this business that you've been incubating for 10 years, but from Israel, which is why we're talking it in the evening, your time. So, um, how is it to be running this? How is it to be growing this? And how do you deal with this as an international company? Sure. Um, so initially in the early days, you know, up until about 20, 2015, you know, it was really me building the core software infrastructure, you know, layer and application layer so that I could run my business and I could start distributing other people and, and understanding how to, know, bring more efficiency around the business of music. Um, then when we went to market in 2015, and we found uh, interest and demand for our products, uh, specifically around analytics, because everyone did not have good visibility into streaming data. But while analytics are an important part and data is an important part of today's, you know, uh, way of doing business, you know, I think the most interesting part for me was following the money. How do we, you know, understand how to do royalty payments faster? How do we get people paid faster? How do we accelerate payments for rights owners? And I think that's kind of been the the thesis that I've been going under for the last five, six, seven years of trying to really understand how to accelerate the flow of funds to all the rights owners that are involved in a song and in an intellectual property into a recording or composition. So you've already talked about that you started as a drummer and enjoying music and um, weren't the tech guy. So, but you taught yourself how to be using the early Apple computer. Are you now the tech guy? How did you become the tech guy? Do you have a battalion of tech people that make you the tech guy? Because uh, for a lot of people, there's a there's a tech underbelly underneath what they did, or they were you know taking apart appliances in their parents' home, or or something. How have you become the tech guy? So I mean, I remember going back, you know, uh, to the mid '90s. Um, there were no databases back then for us to easily manage metadata. So I had to keep track of credits on all the records I was licensing and producing using FileMaker Pro. And I was, you know, building FileMaker Pro databases so I could keep track of who we need, you know, who the credits for those songs and who we needed to pay. You know, fast forward to 2003, 2004, you know, the beginning of cloud, I started looking at, you know, can I use Salesforce as a CRM for managing all the metadata for my label and started kind of learning about how to use, you know, uh, cloud-based software for you know, creating relational objects, relational databases. So we could have a database called tracks, a database called releases, a database called artists, and just kind of creating uh, a way of mapping all this information that our label needs to keep track of and be able to create this, you know, CRM automation around marketing. And, you know, going back to 2004, we were already doing, you know, SEO optimization for landing pages when somebody would come to look for, 
Google and say, why was that song in, you know, Grey's Anatomy? You know, we were one of the top ranking pages because we were creating landing pages for every time we had a license on film or TV with all the keywords that were relevant to the Google search engine. And then we were able to capture a lot of emails and help our artists grow their audiences and then automate the process of, say, you know, discover this artist on these iTunes, you know, store links and things like that. But when I got to Israel, obviously, I wasn't going to sell a product based around Salesforce, but I had kind of built the prototype early in, you know, a decade before just to basically understand how to manage a, a record label's metadata and the data structure and the schema of the data, you know, and all the metadata fields and all the things you needed to know to just keep track of all the data. And I think that just kind of became the foundation for me saying, okay, I need to build better tooling, better software if I'm going to continue to run my label because I don't want to have 10 more people. You know, it's too expensive to employ. And I just didn't believe that the amount of subscribers in the streaming era would be growing fast enough to offset the loss of revenue from downloads. So there was this, you know, middle uh, period where after 2009 till about 2014, I just didn't see a big business in running a label and it was still too much risk uh, considering that streaming was an exciting new opportunity, but the size and the volume of streaming was just not yet uh, warranting the risk in running the label. And from the moment I started developing the, the tooling, I obviously had already the experience in understanding metadata structure and rights information and contracts, you know, uh, data models and those kind of things. So it was actually pretty easy for me. You know, it was actually me applying myself in a V2 kind of way. I did it before. It was my own pet project, but now it needed to be a pro you know, product that other people could use. So I had to kind of create some type of standards around metadata for how do you describe rights, how do you describe release information, track level information, artist level information, those kind of things. Um, so it kind of came naturally. And, you know, I hired um, a development team, an engineering team, and, you know, uh, I would tell them, okay, this is what the data model is for a track, for a release, for an artist, for a DSP report, so those kind of things. And I was interested because I wanted to build this product, and I think just through my interest, I became a product guy. Maybe not so much the tech guy, but I understood tech enough to, to know what I needed to do to get the product to look and feel uh, and, you know, and be user-friendly. And what I realized along the way is, you know, you learn about back-end development, you learn about front-end development, but I loved good product and I cared a lot about user experience and usability. And I was always frustrated with products that did not meet my expectations or were just not intuitive. So I really put a lot of effort into developing intuitive product that deals with a lot of complexity in music data and metadata. And I think, you know, the first iteration of that product, you know, we designed three different times before I was comfortable uh, releasing it. And that was 2014, 2015. And that product lasted, you know, seven years. And now we've completely rebuilt the front end application as we've had to learn how to scale you know, our operations around the world. So today I'm, I'm proud to say the team's done an incredible job at, you know, creating a web application, 
that's responsive, that can scale down all the way to a mobile phone, you know, for artists and labels in Africa who don't have, you know, desktops necessarily, who are using, you know, uh, uploading music from a mobile device to, you know, distributors in Indonesia and Hong Kong who use it in Chinese or who care about the Taiwanese market and the platform localizes to 25 languages. It's, you know, Arabic and Hebrew right to left. These are not easy things to do. These are not small once, things. <laughs> yeah, once you've done it and you've learned the mistakes that you should have done differently, the next time you get the opportunity, you want to do things correctly. And I think we've done a really good job now, you know, at doing that. <laughs> so let me point to current and forward. So um, looking on your website, I was kind of tickled when you look at your products, you've got a category for web two products, which implies then that there's web three products in the pipeline. <laughs> and also that you've got the ability to be offering business intelligence tools to go with all of this. Can you talk a little bit about the, without giving away company secrets, the sort of forward direction and where you're inspired to take this group of B2B clients and tool sets and people all over the world? What's the web three side of this? And then what are, you, what are you thinking and doing and offering with the business intelligence side of this? Sure. So, you know, streaming uh, business models provides two data sets, uh, financial data, which comes monthly, and consumption data, which comes daily. So for the majority of, of you know, artists and labels and, and distributors, the need to understand the daily consumption, the usage pattern, of, you know, where your songs are streaming across which markets and platforms is important to helping inform marketing decisions and be able to understand is my, you know, single really taking off in a certain market or things like that. And it really becomes a data infrastructure problem because there's so much data. When you're processing 3 billion streams per month or more or 6 billion streams, or, you know, some of our companies are doing about 80 to 200 million streams a month individually. And it becomes a challenge to deal with that amount of data coming from many different sources, different platforms, Spotify, Apple, Deezer, YouTube, et cetera, TikTok. And the volume of data is just unmanageable for most companies. So streamlining all those, you know, automating the whole process of collecting, aggregating, normalizing, ingesting, deduplicating, matching, all the things you have to do so that you could just look at a dashboard and understand what's going on and your artists can understand where they're performing or not. Yeah, I think what's interesting with that is if you can you know, accelerate the pace at which people get information about the performance of their assets, it becomes really interesting in not just for marketing purposes or financial management and understanding how to run a business and how to make investment decisions into your artists, how to provide advances to those artists, but also Part of what excites me now is around automating the whole valuation of catalogs so that any of our customers can understand the value of their work in real time. Because I, what I found is that it's really hard to gather all the data, share all the data with potential buyers or lenders or people who want to finance you know, buying assets or catalog. So a lot of what drives me is, can I accelerate payments and can I automate the understanding for the rights owner, even if it's for your 33% share of the song, do you know the value of that song? You know, is there a way that you can understand how much the your thir one third of that song is worth? And can you access 
you know, a market where you can offer fractional ownership of that? Or can you sell or list those uh, royalty streams to uh, potential buyers? And I think that's where the market's or going. I would think if you could also subdivide your portfolio too, right? So, um, so someone can see before they are buying some kind of a representation of the financial elements and that you could also take that sub database and, and be able to move it to a new owner or a new investor. I would think we'd be really the options here. Absolutely. And the whole idea of creating baskets of songs that comes with their cash flows and their valuation metrics, you know, and making that a more of a seamless user experience so that you can accelerate underwriting and then you can share that information with potential interested party will allow independents to easily, you know, more easily sell or or fractionalize their catalog and get financed or get funded or access working capital. And I think the the majors, you know, have whole teams, you know, analyzing catalog purchasing, you know, Neil Young and Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen for $500 million. But the independents just don't have those tools, nor do they have those opportunities. And I believe that what we'll see over the next five years is the growth of the independence will continue. And as a result, the growth of financial services for funding independence will continue. And the better the tools the independents have, then the more likely they'll be able to understand that they also have opportunity for liquidity and for exits. So my last question is then a future direction, which is, kind of the web three side of the house as to sort of rethinking the connective tissue. I'm assuming that's some of your heartbeat going forward and how are you looking at web three opportunities? And is there anything you can share with us that you were tinkering with this in, the, in this regard? Sure. So we've been developing, you know, web three infrastructure for four years, uh, initially around a digital wallet for creators where they could manage their rights and their royalty flows and payments. Uh, we've connected, you know, streaming uh, royalty data from the Revelator platform to those uh, wallets so that any rights holder would receive their share of the money flow um, and could even request advances against their future cash flows based on the consumption data. So we've done that. The interesting part that I'm seeing now, obviously, the music industry is interested in NFTs. They're interested in digital collectibles. And when I look at the Web3 space, I look at three different types of marketplace opportunities. I look at digital collectibles. I look at uh, licensing into Web3 and metaverse or gaming applications. And the third part is around the securitization or the digital securities, you know, selling IP or fractional IP to marketplaces that are compliant and regulated and that can offer um, tokenized securities for music IP. And I think, you know, when we look at the next five years, you know, the streaming landscape will look a little different because I think there will be new marketplaces, new types of marketplaces that open up, you know, more direct to fan uh, and tokenized economies around communities and fan powered communities that will go beyond just what uh, artists are able to do today, which is earn money from streaming. I think the streaming income will just be an input into the value of IP that can be monetized through a digital asset across, you know, different types of marketplaces, whether it's a collectible or licensing your song into, you know, the Central End or the Sandbox or, 
you know, other types of Web3 properties. I was going to say there may be places where people are actually going, but that's a whole nother. We're, we're recording this in October of 2022 when people are kind of going, how many people actually are showing up in these spaces? You actually could have a music data side of this that could help validate that as well. Completely. So I do, you know, love the infrastructure of Web3. I think we're moving from a, you know, Web2 internet, which was based around the flow of information. You know, it was an information-based internet. And I think now we're moving into a value-based internet where value gets exchanged between parties. And I think we'll provide a lot more interesting uh, opportunities around engagement, around direct fans and, you know, direct-to-fan and direct-to-collector and community building. And I think that's really exciting. Well, Bruno, we've been talking for a while. It's been great talking. Is there anything we have not talked about that you'd like to cover before we wrap up? Um, I don't know. I, I think I'm just, you know, the only thing I could add to what I said earlier is there's, I've never been more excited about the music industry um, and I've experienced, you know, different phases of it. I've experienced the analog world. I've, you know, the, the 80s and the 90s. I've experienced the digital, you know, 2000, 2010s. And I, now I'm experiencing it again for the third time in a way, which is a shift in the business model into distribution channels. And it's the most exciting time I've, I've seen, you know, in, in my whole career. So... You know, while it may seem cryptic and complex and people associate, you know, blockchain with cryptocurrencies, you know, it is the underlying or the underpinning technology, but it's so much more than that. And I think um, that I'm really looking forward to seeing how this technology becomes adopted and becomes used for the next five to 10 years and how it creates more democratization of access to music IP and allows, you know, more creators to make a living from their art. So if people are also excited about this and would like to reach out to you to connect with you and your company, how would you like them to reach out and who would you like to reach out? So I think uh, revelator.com is a good place to start. You can contact us from the website. And if you're you know, interested in music, IP, whether it's from the seller side or the buyer side, or if you're a record label that's looking for better tools to help you understand the value of your work and monetize your IP or a distributor looking to launch a service and create a DIY self-distribution model. I think we're a great company to work with. Thank you so much for joining us, Bruno. Have a good evening as you're already deep into your evening and appreciate this great conversation. Absolutely. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Gigi. Mm -hmm.